Pandemic is recorded live in front of an online audience on Mondays at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. To watch a recording as it happens and be able to ask questions to the guests, tune in through our YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, or Twitch pages. Links in the bio. Thanks very much and enjoy the show. Pandemic. My name is Joel Silverman. This is Pandemic. Thank you all so much for tuning in. This is a very special episode tonight because we have the one, the only Sean Ryan with us. He is the creator of a variety of shows that I will mention in my formal, formal introduction momentarily. Before we go over to Sean, a quick note from our sponsors that I want to acknowledge from Roadmap Writers and from Notes for Execs. Roadmap is an online writer education platform hosted by working industry executives. If you're looking for a real world solution to help develop, market, and sell your script, visit roadmapwriters.com to learn more. I'll also throw in that they are friends of mine, and I don't think Sean even knows this, but helped a somebody who works for him get her start and get her manager, who also happens to be my manager. Notes for Execs is a company that guides working entertainment executives on how to give better and more effective creative notes. They are now opening their doors to writers as well who can learn a lot about their own writing through the notes giving process. And this is a really easy one for me to endorse because I was the one who sat in on one of these sessions for executives and said, this has changed how I think about writing. You've got to open this up to writers too. And now my friend Dan, who runs it, is doing just that. And so now without further ado, I can see folks are starting to tune in. It always takes a few minutes, but I want to welcome everybody to this interview with Sean. Sean really has changed the course of television and is probably a little too modest to say so, but there was The Shield and then there was Before The Shield, uh, at least as far as I'm concerned. He also co-created The Unit and Timeless. I know that there will be Timeless fans here tonight and of course now SWAT on uh, on CBS. So Sean, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. One quick clarification, just because I believe in accurate titles. Uh, David Mamet created The Unit and I show ran it with him, but I, I did not co-create that, but just because uh, I want to give Dave all the credit he deserves. Well, you guys certainly I, I can see a lot of both of you having seen your other work <laughs> in that show. And I, I don't know exactly how, I know how the marriage came together and how it started. I don't know exactly how it was with two really auteur personalities, but I loved his memo from <laughs> that came out. Uh, and, and folks, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Google the David Mamet unit room memo and, and post it to your wall and hold it as gospel. Yeah, he was big in the memos, and there are some that have never been publicized uh, that, unfortunately, I don't think I have. So that was not the only memo that they've uh, uh, sort of handed out during that time. So uh, people got a little glimpse. So it was, it was like being in a, in a master class uh, with him as a professor during that time. That's interesting, because I feel like you probably taught each other a lot, bringing different mediums and different sensibilities there. Oh, uh, well, you know, Dave is an extraordinarily smart guy. I don't know how much I taught him, but but uh, I really loved working with him and telling those stories and uh, 
and he had been a writer hero of mine and and uh to get a chance to work with him was pretty incredible and they always say be careful of meeting your heroes but in that case i was certainly glad i did cool and so i uh we were chatting right before we hopped on about a mutual friend of ours matt nix and i often start these shows with a quote from him that says great writers don't just write what they know they write who they are both by necessity when you're a showrunner and you're just constantly trying to put stuff out and also by virtue of that being something that makes the writing good so i'm curious you're somebody who has had this long and varied career with very different kinds of shows the shield you've got a cop show you've got a counterterrorism show in the unit you've got a sci-fi show in timeless you've now got swat which is kind of a cop show but also it's it's social drama well for, yeah and it's first responder show but through the eyes of an african-american cop who's one foot in his south central uh south la community another foot with police it really sort of stemmed from aaron thomas my partner on that show you know his idea was at that time black lives matter blue lives matter was a real conflict going in the country and we liked the idea of building a show around a guy who who was a little bit of each and seeing if there was a way for the country to come together around that. And I think that it, it's very effective at that. I was going to ask, and I think that this segues perfectly, The what do you see as the through line that is you through all of these shows? Because certainly I would see topicality. You know, there's a, there was a huge topicality to the unit, uh, certainly to SWAT. But what do you think that is is core to you that's a through line through all these these programs that you infuse as a writer? That's so hard for me. You know, I always comment that I, when we were doing The Shield, I always comment that I love to read the reviews because um, it allowed me to see what the show was actually about. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I'm more of an instinctual writer than an intellectual writer. Uh, I, I'm always amazed at how smart so many of the people in my profession are. Uh, and how they plan certain things out. Um, I sort of usually realize threads after the fact um, on things and things that are affecting me. Uh, I would say, I guess if there is one thread from the shield to the unit uh, and now SWAT, that maybe it's um, the burden that we put on those who protect us and the price that they pay for being the people that protect us. I'm, I'm very interested in that dichotomy of um, what's it mean to be a hero uh, and what's the price you pay for being that hero. Right. Um, you seem to have, well, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious then before we go on and, and interrogate mm -hmm. that more, um, do you, have, do you have a do you have a background? Is there something in your background that brought you into questioning the nature of heroism, um, or is this something that you backed into? Was I a hero in my younger days? I'd like I'd like to think so, but probably. I not. realized as I was saying it that that's how it was coming out, which is why I stuttered. Uh, <laughs> And no, I'm okay with asking it that way. Were you a hero as a young man? Is that no, I, I have a very boring backstory uh, for a writer. I, you know, I had loving parents and, you know, who put their kids first and, you know, stressed that I get an education and, you know, 
drove me to every soccer and hockey game that I played in. And, and um, I didn't have a father who was a cop who, you know, would come home and share all these stories. Um, but I guess, I guess I was a reader. I, I really love to read. And I'm glad I was born in a generation that didn't have iPads in cars. Um, because it, because my entertainment driving all around was to read books and, and, and I just like to read about people's experiences. Um, and you know, I was always fascinated with, um, not always, but I was fascinated with, um, de, de Tocqueville, the, the French author who came to the United States and wrote wow. um, about the American experience. And, and he specifically wrote some things about the Midwest where I was from that I thought, wow, this is so accurate and it's so interesting that it took a french guy in the 19th century mm -hmm. to sort of describe to me the midwest in a, in a way that i understood it he described it i think as like the beating heart of the country um and so i always was open to the idea that that you didn't have to be immersed in a certain life to be able to write about it you know uh that if you could observe it and if you could put your own spin on it, and if you could um, dissect something in a way that was interesting, then you can write about it. So I was never a cop. The closest thing I got was I worked as student security at my college, um, you know, for some extra money, you know, walking around with a flashlight um, and a bib designating myself as campus security. Um, but I never did anything. It wasn't until after the fact um, when I was developing the show, The Chicago Code, I spent a couple of nights in Chicago with homicide detectives and actually went out into the street with them and, you know, had a bulletproof vest on and um, got involved in a chase for a suspect where I found myself in a, in a um, sort of large sort of uh, car area looking for a suspect going, oh, my God, what am I doing? Why am I looking for some suspect? What happens if I actually find him? Um, so, no, I didn't have any special background that, that made me for this, other than I guess I was just always interested in the human condition and always interested in making observations about things. Um, and I, I would say that there's a character strength and flaw that I kind of have, which is that, you know, like, I never liked conflict as a child. I always wanted people to get along. And one way I would do that is I would try really hard to understand the other person's point of view or if i was a third person in the middle of an argument i'd say hey this person over here thinks this and you think you know that, that i wanted people to come along and to do that i would find myself really trying to understand why people were behaving the way they were um find rationales for why their behavior or what they were saying made sense and and i didn't realize that at the time but that was sort of my training ground to be a writer i would say it's really interesting. Uh, I think that you make a really cheers. Excellent... By the way, we we do have cheers. alcohol. Yes, and and thank you to Sean. I've asked all of my guests uh, that if they come on and have a and have a glass, I'll have a glass with them, and and many don't. So this liberates me to be able to do the same. Very good. The 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 reason I said wow when you were talking uh, before just came out involuntarily because the the Tocqueville is not a reference that comes up in a lot of these kinds of conversations. And well, I it makes me sound far more intellectual than I am because I'm not the kind of person that tends to pretentiously drop the names of 19th century authors. But he did have um, a specific effect on me 
I must have been, I don't know, 15, 16, 17 years old when I read um, his book. And I can't remember the title. That shows you how. Democracy in America. Thank you. It had um, the same effect on me. And when I read that, so it's not, yeah, I'm not usually the wine-sipping de Tocqueville quoting guy, but in this case, so be it. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's good to be able to slip into the point of view of the wine-sipping de Tocqueville guy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's that's interesting to bring that kind of multiple, the ability to look into multiple points of view. I feel like that is pretty consistent across your work. I just last night, as a matter of fact, rewatched The Shield pilot just to kind of get myself in the mindset it had been a long time. How did, how did it hold up? Uh, everything about it that you were in control of, it holds up perfectly. A few of the things that still look, I'm like, oh, right, this was 2002. Some time has passed since then. So uh, old cell phones and things like that? cell phones or... and, and the title uh, graphics, uh, you know, look a little bit less... They were always intended to be rough. Um, and in mm. fact, there's a fun story about that. We, when we were in the editing room on the pilot trying to figure out what should go where, we wanted a break <clears throat> between the end of the teaser and act one, but didn't know what it should be. And there were just some plain titles up there. And, and I said, well, that just feels boring. And our editor, I just sort of said, I don't know what gave me the idea, but I was like, first of all, maybe a font that feels rougher he found a font that I think ultimately was called Crack House. I think was the name of the font that we used. <coughs> um, and and I don't know what in in my mind this was you know pre sort of visual effects houses doing things quickly and easily and cheaply for you. I was like, I don't know, maybe if it was just a little jangly, if it was moving around. And and Scott Brazil, who worked on the pilot with me, we went off to dinner, and when we came back, our editor had just put together this thing on his own, sort of in his editing bay, and that's what it ended up being for seven years. Um, but one reason was we had so little money to make that pilot and to make the show that they they put in the budget $50,000 to hire a company to do titles for the show. And I was just like, well, why don't we come up with our own titles and spend that $50,000 somewhere else? So I understand why it looks sort of cheap um, and basic, although I always felt that that worked well with the aesthetic of the show. 100% agree. And don't mean to be obsequious. I'm just walking the line here between interviewer and fan. Uh, <laughs> but something that stood out to me and that really jives with what you mentioned about seeing other people's points of view and incorporating that into the writing, there's an amazing interrogation scene that I'm sure you remember, but for the audience, I have to refresh, where the interrogator is trying to uh, find the location of a little girl that's been kidnapped. And so he is sympathizing with this guy who you can tell is a pedophile and presenting that guy's point of view back to him and saying like, yeah, you know, like it's just social mores, it's this, it's that. And it's really powerful because obviously you're never on the side of the pedophile, but you're being given just a little bit of a view into a perverse way of thinking. So that, that certainly tracks. Now, when you're developing, knowing that that is part of your, your Swiss army knife, is that something that you try and bring to things that you say, okay, let's try and put in a counterintuitive view. Let's try and get into the points of view of people that you wouldn't think we would otherwise get into. Um, a little bit. I'm always looking for a different way in than what you usually see on TV shows. You're referring to a scene that where Dutch um, um, 
is sort of talking to this guy, and, and yeah, he um, he he seems to associate with the guy. I I think I had done some research or heard about how the most and listen, I was a huge fan of like Homicide, and Homicide had really interesting interrogation scenes um, that I certainly I think. Um, borrowed from or, or homages, if you want to call them, that we did on The Shield. But what I had sort of learned was that the best way to get people to talk was actually to sympathize with them and to share their viewpoint on life. That the classic, you know, in their face, um, threatening thing, which we would see at, often on the show through Vic, wasn't always the most effective way to do things. And, and so I was fascinated that, you know, with The Shield, I'd seen so many cop shows. I was a big fan of cop shows. The Shield really began because at that point, there wasn't a cop show on TV that I loved anymore. Um, I'd loved early seasons of NYPD Blue. I'd loved Homicide, Life on the Street, but that was off the air. Um, retroactively, because I came to it late, I watched in the 90s, you know, Hill Street Blues. And so I just wanted... You know, to me, I was like, well, what's the cop show I want to watch that I haven't seen before? And so every moment, every scene, everything I could, I was always asking, is there a way to do it? That, that, you know, a detective seemingly sympathize um, about, you know, child molestation, essentially. Um, and uh, I had been, um, I remember back in the 90s, I don't know what made me go see this movie. And every person I talked to that was like, um, um, oh my God, why did you do that? But I'd read some review somewhere. There was a sort of short documentary film. I think it was called Chicken Hawks. And essentially a, a documentary crew embedded itself with members of NAMBLA, the North American Boy Love Association, wow. um, that advocates uh, for adult underage sex. Now, obviously that's a horrific thing to the vast majority of people um, in the country and presumably those watching on this thing. What was so f interesting and amazing to me about the documentary is that they just presented these people. They didn't, you know, there was no external commentary on them. There was nothing, you know, there was no sort of showing of experts who talk about this, but they really just let these people talk and kind of hang themselves, I guess, is, the best way to put it. And I, I, that was a movie that I was very um, affected by. I was like, oh, that's so interesting, that approach. And I think, I think that movie was in my head a little bit when I wrote that scene, that it was more interesting not to have someone externally um, denounce this behavior, um, but to bring this guy in. So I, I appreciate you bringing up that scene. That's one of my favorites from the pilot. Um, and I was always proud that, like, oh, that's a scene that you don't usually see in TV shows. Right. And I think that the, that idea of just kind of approaching the characters deadpan where they are without putting the, the judgment of the writer and letting them hang themselves uh, is, is a really effective tool. I think, yeah, if I can interrupt, you know, one of my favorite shows right now, it's only two seasons, I don't know if we'll get any more, is Mindhunter on Netflix. Mm -hmm. And and I think you see, um, and that's based on the real life of John Douglas, the FBI profiler. Um, and you see that show utilizes very similar thing. He'll go in and he'll talk to Charles Manson or these serial killers have done these awful things. And, and he really communicates with them in sort of a very non-judgmental way that took 
me feels very real to get these people to talk. So you see other examples of it um, in, in shows that I like. Uh, so I recommend Mindhunters if you haven't seen it. Yeah, uh, Mindhunters is phenomenally well done. Um, so I'm curious, going back to the beginning of the shield, because that was a moment you had been, I know, on Nash Bridges mm -hmm. and were still a, a kind of on your way up. And then you had the opportunity to make an FX drama, which at the time was like, what? What's an FX drama? What's a cable, a basic cable drama? And so yeah. I'm curious, what did that opportunity look like? What was, because you were, you were there, you kind of ushered in this transition into uh, a more sophisticated kind of storytelling that was enabled by, by cable and by streaming to a certain degree. Um, and so I'm curious how it felt both riding and, and leading that wave. And what was the experience in, in that moment, late nineties, early two thousands launching into, into something new? Well, first, first of all, you have to give credit to shows like Oz and The Sopranos that preceded us, who really did establish that you could do um, this complex, very adult uh, storytelling on TV. Now, the feeling at the time was HBO was the only place you could do it. Right. Um, and so I would say what the thing that we changed was that you could do it on basic cable. You could do it while selling ads. Um, and I think the thing that we proved was that HBO didn't have a monopoly on high-quality um, prestige storytelling, I guess is the best way that I can put it. Um, how did it feel at the time? It, it felt surreal because, as you put it, I was a low-level writer just trying to work my way up, trying not to be fired off the shows I worked on. Um, the reason why The Shield came to be was that um, I spent three years working on Nash Bridges, um, a phenomenal writing staff, uh, phenomenal mentors and Carlton Cuse and John Worth who really took their time um, trying to teach me what I was doing right and what I was doing wrong. Um, but there was a formula to that show. And there was very much, uh, in many ways, because of Don Johnson, our star, who wanted to be viewed very heroically. Um, and he had a lot of cloud on the show. Um, there were narrow parameters which writing for that show for three years, I started to buck against. I started to resist. Now I couldn't resist it on Nash Bridges. <laughs> right? And so what I found was I had this idea for the show that turned out to be the shield. And I was like, I'm just gonna get everything. And I gone on police ride alongs and up in San Francisco for the show. And had seen things that, you know, I thought were really super interesting, but were wholly inappropriate for Nash Bridges. And I was like, let me just let me just get it all out in this one script. And then, of course, no one will ever make this show because the only people that make shows like this are HBO and they produce their own stuff. So this will never get made, but hopefully it's a good writing sample. And, and after three years of writing Nash as the hero 100% of the time, let me write this guy who's kind of heroic, but also an asshole. And you kind of love him, but you kind of hate him. And... And I never imagined The Shield, especially the pilot, I would say is a far darker show than I am as a person. Hmm. And I did it as a one-time thing to get it out of the way, to like just cleanse my palate from Nash. Um, and I'd started to work on Angel for Joss Whedon at that point. 
because I started writing the pilot while I was still on Nash and sort of finished it when I had started on Angel. Um, but all of a sudden, FX wanted to make it, and all of a sudden, it became my life for seven years. And it was interesting because I, I'm a far happier, more optimistic person than I think that show suggests. Um, and it was, and at the beginning, it was hard to believe. Like when I first got a call about this media, I was like, "FX? You mean Fox?" Like, "No, FX." And I was like, "Yeah, I, I get that cable show. That's like Beverly Hills now two one zero repeats. Like, what are you talking about? Like, like it, they were speaking another language. Like, they don't make TV shows. What are you talking about?" And I had to be convinced that, like, just go and meet with them and talk with them. And, and I met with Kevin Riley and Peter Igori there, and they kind of explained what they were doing. I said, I was like, well, that sounds amazing. That will never work, but okay. You know, um, I mean, who's going to watch, like, shows on FX? Like, it just made no sense. Right. But I was so early in my career and so low on the totem pole that if somebody says, hey, we want to make your show, you're just so excited to make it. Once again, it was like, well, if we can do a good job – of course, they'll never make it, and if they make it, no one will ever watch it. But if, but if it's sort of good, maybe that could be a calling card for my next gig. Um, and it wasn't until after season one premiered and you know got good ratings, great reviews, that I was like, oh my god, this might like be my life for a few years, <laughs> which was surprising. But it was, it was surreal. It was utterly unexpected. It didn't match up with how everyone understood the industry to work. There were people there at FX and, you know, and I've heard stories after the fact about, I wouldn't say resistant, but how skeptical management at News Corp, Corp was about this. But they gave Peter and Kevin the rope to hang themselves and then it worked. And I think there were a lot of people that were shocked and, and I give them a lot of credit. And, and listen, I love getting some of the credit for being the creator of The Shield, but you know, they followed that up with Nick Nip Tuck and then Rescue Me. Um, and so they're very smart about what they were doing. And there was a niche. Um, you know, I always say to writers, like, write the show that's not on TV that you want to watch. And these guys programmed the shows that weren't on TV that they wanted to watch. And there was, there was a gap between these prestige HBO shows that were only on a few months out of the year um, and network TV at that point. Um, and between subscription, you know, channels like HBO and, and ad-supported networks. And they, you know, Peter Gori once told me the story that when he went to present this pilot to advertisers in New York and advertiser buyers, um, that before they ran the pilot for everyone to watch, that he said, listen, I just want, before you watch the show, I just want you to ask yourself one question. So this would have been in 2001. Uh, and The Sopranos, I think, was in its second or third season at this point. He goes, if you could buy ads on The Sopranos, would you? And then he rolled the pilot of The Shield. So there was this niche that was being unserved, um, that, that they were smart enough to notice, and they had found my script and thought it might work for them. And, and uh, But... I, my life changed so dramatically, so quickly. It was crazy. It was it was nuts. And I still have a hard time believing it because all I wanted to be was a working writer. I didn't want to be a guy that, you know, of course I wanted to be, but I didn't imagine myself being a guy who was like changing the face of television with his show or a guy that would get up at the Golden Globe Awards to accept, you know, the trophy for best drama. That, that just was like... 
incomprehensible to me. And it's still hard to believe because I just wanted to be a working guy. I just wanted to be a guy who could go to work and write things. You know, when, when I wrote my first episode of Nash Bridges, it, it premiered on Halloween night, 1997. And I was just like, oh my God, like there's my name on CBS is writing the episode. I just, I thought that was a pinnacle. I didn't think it got better than that. And so as it got better, you know, it, it, you know, it's that broadcast news line where Holly Hunter, you know, um, says, you know, what do you, you know, or no, it's William Hurt says, uh, what, you know, what do you do when your reality sort of eclipses your dreams or something like that? And she says, you know, keep it to yourself. Uh, you know, I was just like, oh, I keep it to myself. It's just hard to believe. That's, that's, that's fascinating. I didn't know. I, I just knew it as an outside viewer. And I, I think about now how so many people coming up take for granted that they can write those kinds of things that are edgier and that push more boundaries. And I think that there's a wider range of ideas that people feel like they can do now, but still, even so, even people who've been on here who have come up more recently, over and over again, there's some version of this story of something that had built up inside them that they just desperately wanted to tell the story that didn't necessarily make any sense to the industry as it existed and didn't right. make sense necessarily to their reps or whoever. And then they went and they wrote it. And that was the thing that precipitated the next great launch. Yeah. Um, Mad Men's a great example of that. You know, yeah. HBO passed on the script for Mad Men. You know, yeah, even though even though Matt had been a writer on The Sopranos, you know, here's the script. You know, but what what's a show about, you know, advertising guys in the 1960s? It's nuts. Um, so, yeah, there are all these examples. And. You know, I actually worry a lot about the business because um, I think the TV business is starting to become more like film and, and film, the film business is essentially, other than big Marvel movies, has essentially destroyed itself over the last 20 years. And now we're applying their methods more. And so many of these projects are starting off with, well, we have this book and this star and this director and the sixth person being brought on is the showrunner. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to put all this together and then we're going to bring some and I, I feel like the batting average for those things is so low. When I look back and think about the shows that were seminal in the last 20 years, the vast majority of them, maybe like Game of Thrones is an exception because it was based on the novels, but the vast examples of this, whether it's prestige cable like The Sopranos and Breaking Bad and, and The Shield of Mad Men, or whether it's network like Grey's Anatomy. Grey's Anatomy was a passion thing that Shonda Rhimes had. That was a story she had to tell. Matt Weiner had to tell the story of Mad Men. You know, to me, that's the road to success in TV is to have somebody who has an idea that nobody's had before that they just have to tell. And if properly supported and properly cast and properly produced, those are the shows that become special in my estimation. I completely agree and uh, have made the same observation about how movies are or tv is the new movies and and the internet is kind of the new tv the internet's what tv used to be yeah um, and i think that one of the things that we may be seeing coming down the pike is indie tv in the same way that you had indie movies at a certain point that were really big uh and that was the only way that you could make 
a really cool, interesting, auteur-driven thing, I think that you we may see in the next 10 years the emergence of indie TV as a sector that's doing just that. I'd be shocked if that didn't happen. You know, I was doing a, a Zoom session yesterday with um, with a joint acting and directing class of students from my alma mater, uh, Middlebury College in Vermont. And they were talking about, you know, asking all the questions that everyone does. You know, there's a sophomore girl who, like, is interested in being a professional actress and, you know, someday, all this stuff. And how do you do it? And it seems so intimidating when you're at college, especially in the middle of nowhere, Vermont. Um, but I was just comparing, you know, I went to college 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago now, really aging myself. Um, and at that time, there was one camera that you could check out for the whole school, for mm -hmm. all students in film. And then there was one editing bay that was a tape to tape thing that you had to reserve and you could only reserve it for two hour sections. Um, and now they've got, I was like, you can make movies on your iPhone if you want to. Um, you know, the iPhone cameras are 10 times better than the cameras that we had to use when, when I was there. Um, you know, if you have friends who are talented that can act, and I saw some really good actors in that in that thing yesterday, um, and if you write something that's interesting, if you know, why can't you make it for fifty bucks and post it online? Why wouldn't you? You know, people are asking me, well, how do I be a writer? Well, the answer is simple: you write. How do I be an actor? Well, it's simple: you act. You get somebody to write something, and you find a way to produce it. How do I direct? It's simple: you direct. And it, that used to be very hard and or very expensive to do. Yeah. Now it's not. So how 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 is there not a rebellion away from the gatekeepers at networks and studios to some person in college getting together with some talented friends and saying, hey, I got an idea. Let me write some scripts and let's sort of film this on the weekend and let's post it. How does that not happen? I'm yeah. sure it already is happening. It's absolutely happening. I think it's just that it's scaling up and right. becoming potentially profitable. And that's the most exciting thing to me that I, I see changing in the industry now where, you know, it, entertainment is a business like any other. You've got a product and you need to create a product and then you need a means of distribution for the product and then you need customers for the product who will buy it. Well, it used to be that there were a very few number of customers, really. And there were, uh, and the cost to make it was so high that you needed really significant institutional backing. And all of a sudden it's like, well, you can create a product, you can distribute it, you can, uh, and then the only issue really becomes monetization. If you make it for cheap enough, then that might not necessarily matter, but there are ways I see people, Glass Brothers or whatever, make a little show, flip it to Netflix, flip it to Hulu, flip it to whoever, because they need stuff. And there's more than one, there's more than one game in town. Well, I was a joint economics major in college, and you, you, they'd always talk about, you know, what are the barriers to entry? And usually, mm -hmm. it's startup costs, right? You're you're trying to make a thousand widgets, and the formula is, you know, X being, you know, how much it costs to build the equipment, and then and then it's, you know, Y times fifteen cents per each unit of widget. But the X would always be such a big number, it would be a barrier to entry for people. And that was true of trying to make a movie or trying to make a TV show 30 years ago. Now the barrier of entry, that X number is so small, it's so little, it's literally almost the time 
for you to get out of bed and you know put your phone on or spend 250 bucks to buy an actual pretty good camera and then you can edit it on your laptop i mean these things i'm so jealous of this generation if i'd had access to that kind of equipment when i was 18 19 20 years old i would have been out on the college quad filming shit every weekend yeah uh and I think that that's a really powerful takeaway, too, for those who are watching and who are on the way up, that even somebody who is, you know, by any account, one of the most successful people inside the existing system is is fully endorsing the idea to go and make your own stuff. Um, well, that's how you get better. 100%. I mean, as a writer... When I came out to Los Angeles in 1990, I ended up, I, I was counting, I'm not sure if it was 16 or 17, but it's one of the two. Let's say 16. I wrote 16 spec scripts before I started getting hired for jobs and getting paid. Hmm. Right? Um, some were comedies because I thought I might want to be a comedy writer, some were dramas. Uh, but I kept writing and writing and writing. Uh, I kept writing because I was trying to get work. What I didn't know at the time, and I realize now, was that I was writing to become a better writer. So it eventually did lead to employment, but not because of anything other than I grew into the kind of writer that could be employed. Right. Uh, that's a good. That's a good takeaway quote. Grow grow into the kind of writer who could be employed. And on that note, I'm going to pause just for a second because I need to do a quick ad break because this is television. Um, and so, uh, cheers to that and to those in the audience. Uh, stick around because after we do this, I'm going to start hopping into your questions, including one, Ryan Johnson, our guest from last night, co-EP on Blindspot, has a question. Ryan, you're going to be our first one uh, because you suffered through all the technical difficulties <laughs> last night that made tonight possible. So uh, on that note, I'm going to hop over, do a little sponsorship break. Here I am. I'm taking up the whole screen and I appear... Oh, I do actually have my ad text up. I'm going to get better at this, folks, but thanks for sticking with me. Tonight's episode of Pandemic is brought to you by Roadmap Writers and Notes for Execs. Roadmap is a screenwriting education platform for writers looking for a guided path to success. Programs are hosted online by working industry executives and are designed to empower writers with actionable tools to elevate their craft and cultivate industry relationships. Since 2016, Roadmap has helped more than 113 writers sign to representation and many others get staffed, optioned, or sell their script. To learn more, visit RoadmapWriters.com and use the code PANDEMIC to save $15. Roadmap Writers, the road to your screenwriting success starts here. And I will also just throw on my personal endorsement. There are a lot of bullshitters in the quote-unquote breaking-in space, and they are not them because I've now known these folks for five years. I've seen them help a lot of people and they just don't make human beings better than Joey Duccio, the head of Roadmap Writers, especially if you are an orphaned dog. And I mean that literally, he takes and rescues all of them. Uh, notes for Execs is a company that guides working entertainment executives on how to give better and more effective creative notes. Now they are opening their doors to writers as well. You can learn a lot about their own writing through learning about the notes giving process. And once again, I will throw on my personal endorsement there because uh, I saw Dan Ragusis, who runs wrote, uh, who runs Notes for Execs, come into an ex into a workshop that I was running, and saw how amazing he was at it, and then saw him deconstruct what a good note is, and then saw him 
do that with a bunch of execs. And the fact that he's now going to open that up, he's, by the way, running a, a major development fund or running development for a major film fund. And the man is is the rain man of notes giving, but plus a whole great deal of kindness and nurturing, too. So notesforexecs.com, roadmapwriters.com, check them out. And now we return to Mr. Sean Ryan with questions from you all. Can I say one thing before we get the first question about Absolutely. your about your sponsors? Um, it occurs to me that like in ten years, will you need to go to film school? Right, like you have all the you know when you talk about you know roadmap writers, that sounds very interesting to me. And you know, I've been interested um, in like master class that I haven't signed up for yet, but I think I'm going to. You know, David Mamet has a master class on, you know, writing, and Shonda Rhimes has a master class on writing. For the, you know, um, there's so many uh, assets and opportunities that people have to learn that doesn't require $70,000 a year um, from these film schools. It, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether, you know, you know, um, people in, in the arts, rather than sort of leave with $150,000, $200,000 student loan debts for grad school, you know, why not at least start by looking at some of these sort of opportunities to sort of learn this way? It's, 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 it's interesting to me where this may end up going. That's my only comment. I, I think it's a really worthwhile comment. And I also, I, I, as I recall, I think that you, you studied film and, and economics, apparently. Uh, but did you go to film school? No. I was a joint economics and theater major. Now, I took some film classes as part of the theater major, but only like two or three. I was far more focused on theater, so I, I wrote plays in college. Um, I wrote three plays in college. I acted in, I don't know, six, seven plays. I directed a play or two. Um, so I was very immersed in theater. But as a latchkey kid growing up, who had two working parents. My mother was a public school teacher. My father was an accountant. Um, my brother and I would return home from school at around, you know, three o'clock, three thirty every day. And my parents would get home till six. So three thirty to six became rerun time, you know, for her, you know, uh, the Brady bunch, the monkeys, uh, the partridge family, Beverly Hillbillies, you know, um, we weren't watching the new episodes, but, but there would be repeats on in the afternoon. So I was very much a TV kid. Um, and so studying playwriting got me into writing, but very quickly I segued into, you know, wanting to write for TV, but I was not a film major. I still consider myself a person of words more than a person of images. Um, I've chosen never, at least not to this point, I've chosen never to direct, um, because I always think there's somebody out there that can do it better for me than I would do for myself. I, I always thought I was going to direct during season two of the shield. I think they, we held a slot open for me to direct. And then about three, four weeks out from doing it, I realized that I had only signed up out of ego, not that I thought it was the best thing for the show. And when I realized that, I was like, Oh, I don't need to do this. And so I think I, sloughed the episode onto Scott Brazil and, and, and I've never even toyed with the idea of directing since then. So, um, so yeah, I, I made some, I made three or four student films in college. Once again, they're very rudimentary because of my own lack of skills at that point And because of the lack of quality equipment at the time, you know, editing was very laborious 
and the cuts, you know, did not look seamless and everything. But like I, I, I did a film version of a, of a short play I'd written. I did a sort of documentary um, about racism at my college. I, I did um, a mock sports thing, um, a sort of mockumentary thing. Um, but, you know, it was all within the scope of a liberal arts education while I was also taking, you know, history and economics classes and everything. Uh, I think that that answer is a question that a lot of folks often ask, which is, should I go to film school? Do I need to go to film school? And I think that the answer to that is, should you? More complicated question than can be answered in this context. Do you need to? That's clearly you don't necessarily you don't need, need to. to. It might work for some people. And certainly what I would say is this. I wouldn't go to film school and leave with a huge student debt. Yeah. You know, not everyone is in the same circumstances. And if you know, if your parents can pay for college, you know, good. But, but, you know, I also think this studying history, studying economics helped me to be a better writer, you know, having a liberal arts education, um, as opposed to a very specific film education, helped me understand the world in ways that I was able to later translate onto the TV screen, I think. Um, But every, but, you know, but every journey is different in Hollywood. And I certainly know people who did go to film school, both for undergrad and grad, who swear by it and love it. And if that's what works for them, then that's what works for them. There is no one way to succeed or to certainly fail in Hollywood. Well, <laughs> there might there are a lot of folks that I think could speak to all the different ways that one can fail, but that's a different conversation. No, there's lots of ways to fail. Lots so, of ways. And a few ways to succeed. And a few ways to succeed. Although I do always say, and then I want to get to Ryan's question here, uh, Ryan Johnson, that is, yeah. uh, that that every success story I know involves a really great piece of material getting into the hands of someone who has the ability to hire you and the inclination to do so. And if you can just adjust for those three things, great piece of material. If somebody just has a ton of inclination because they're your cousin or something, well, that changes the equation. But usually it just means that you're, you got to have something great and then bit by bit, find somebody who can, who can pay you for it. But so Ryan asks, if smartphones have made storytelling better or worse, harder or easier? Worse and harder. Uh, and Ryan, we see on screen here, I don't know if, Sean, you can see this, very specific question. Does the invention of smartphones, yeah. Wow, no, it's, it's, it's obviously <laughs> worse because, you know, you're constantly having to explain, like, why someone doesn't just call or text someone information that you want to, you know, withhold from a character, you know? So you make up things like, oh, I've got no reception, um, <laughs> you know? Uh, it's far worse, you know? There's, it, it, it chips away at mystery, you know? Oh, what's happening here? Well, why don't you just fucking Google it, <laughs> you know? And so you have to consider all that stuff and the parameters of the story breaking. Um, there are times where you can use cell phones to actually increase the drama. I don't want to act like it never helps. But I would say on the whole, it's really refreshing to watch these movies and TV shows from the 70s and 80s and sort of understand, well, you know, you're not asking yourself, well, why don't you just call someone on your cell? You understand that they are isolated in this moment and have nothing but their wits to get by on. And isn't that more interesting? So it's worse. It's worse. You know, and the question is, will technology advance to the point that it makes all storytelling just silly? And will everything be period pieces back before this technology existed then? 
Well, I think that it'll certainly make detective stories harder because the it's just going to be like, well, well at a certain point, it's just going to be, well, we know you killed her because we tracked your phone and you were there at the time she died. Right. And, and there's, you know, closed circuit TV that shows you entering the apartment. You know, I mean, what are the crimes that can actually be committed now that there's not some digital footprint just saying, well, that's who did it. This is a great idea for a sketch, actually. It's called Law and Order 2040. <laughs> and it's, it's every episode is 30 seconds. It's like, yeah, uh, yep, he was there. <laughs> you did and, it. Uh, Your Honor, he was yeah, there. Yeah, right there. there. We got yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, Ryan says, I'm glad we share the same opinion. <laughs> and so I, I have a question here. Gosh, I've got so many piled up, folks. I'm sorry. I'm going to catch up as quickly as I can, especially because I know that Sean's time is limited. Um, I'll, I'll go for as long as you need me to go. Well, uh, I will, I will, I appreciate that and I will be as respectful of that as humanly possible. So Himson asks if you had a moment going back to the shield where you realized the impact that it was going to have. Did you have a moment when you realized, oh, this is going to change the landscape of television? Well, I don't know about change the landscape of television. What was glorious about the shield <laughs> is that we we're able to sort of work anonymously uh, a little <laughs> bit before our work was judged at all. So we had made the pilot. We filmed four episodes, or was it two episodes? We filmed, I guess, two episodes before um, the Christmas break in 2001, and then immediately started filming in January. Um, and uh, we weren't going to premiere until March of 2002. But Diane Wirtz, who was a reporter, a TV critic, I think for Newsday maybe at that time. I might have the, the publication wrong, but it was definitely Diane Wirtz. She was the president of the Television um, Critics Association that year. And we were doing, sometime I think late January, we were doing the TCAs, they call them, where you sort of present your show to the critics and you, you know, get on a stage and they ask you questions and everything. And the night before that, they had closed-circuit TV in the hotel where they essentially streamed The Shield for any critics that wanted to watch. And right before the TCA, or either right after, I forget which, which you know, usually critics will withhold their reviews until like the week before your show premieres. And Diane Wirtz, for whatever reason, chose to write a review in January of a show that wasn't premiering until March. And she was very effusive in her praise. And we felt like we were making something really good, but was in this vacuum. And how yeah. do you know for sure? And is it just that we're working on it that we think it's good and are we mistaken? And she wrote some really glowing things based on the pilot that she'd seen. Um, and, and that sort of shook things like an earthquake uh, at the FX offices. And I also think it set the tone because she was in this leadership position that year at the TCA, the fact she had written this, I think set the tone, A, that these critics should not ignore this little thing that was on FX. And I think they were preconditioned to not uh, hold biases against it for being on FX. And so suddenly that first review was like, oh my God, like we may get some attention. And like, she's... I can't remember any of the specifics about the review, but I remember it was a pretty great glowing review. Um, and then, you know, in the week leading up, 
the reviews started piling in. Now, interestingly, <laughs> in the category of, you know, you forget all the good reviews and you only remember the bad ones. It's not like we had bad reviews, but there were only two publications I subscribed to at that time. One was the Los Angeles Times and the other was Entertainment Weekly. And Entertainment Weekly gave us either like a B minus or a C plus for the pilot. And Los Angeles Times didn't review it at all. I found out later that the TV critic was very conflicted about the in-your-face nature of the show. And I think he understood that there was some really good stuff there, but I think he was uncomfortable with the material and uncomfortable with, are we really going to put this kind of material on Advertise TV? And I think he chose not to do a review. So, like, all these reviews from other parts of the country were coming in that were very flattering. And then Entertainment Weekly, which came in my mailbox each week, was very meh. <laughs> and 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 the Los Angeles Times just wouldn't talk about it at all. <laughs> and so, um, so our bad average was very high, but the ones that sort of mattered to me were not giving us praise. But to answer your question, like, the, the critics, once they saw and started talking about it, I realized, I didn't know if people would watch it, but I thought that we had achieved everything that was in our power to achieve, that we had made something that was really good, I guess. And so then it aired that Tuesday in, in March and, um, you know, and the ratings came in the next day and they weren't big ratings by network standards, but they were very big ratings by basic cable standards. And I realized that my life had changed. Wow. And, and what a crock that for so many people who would have that story now, because uh, I am on a streaming show right now and we just had our first season come out and it's like impossible to tell what our ratings are. We, we're, we're looking at all the metrics and we're going, wow, we, we have a lot of retweets and, and Amazon says that they're really good. But right. there's no moment where you look and say, whoa, that was it. The, the, right. the disc flipped. Yeah, I, I have mixed feelings about the secrecy of that. Part of you as a creator might like that, hey, if this is a big failure, no one will really know other than it was canceled. Um, but you wonder what shenanigans are going on in terms of, you know, who's watching and how much they're watching. And it's a little suspicious that they'll cherry pick which ratings they want to share with, with the town and the industry and which ones they want. Uh, I had noticed that, and uh, at least with, with live streams, Facebook, Twitter, and everybody else are going to say exactly how many people watched, and then bit by bit, how that will grow once once it lives on on the platform. But among the diehards watching right now, VJ wants to know, or wants you to know, this is why I giggled while you were talking, Sean, that the NFL draft is going great. Um, I recorded it. First of all, I was a little disappointed. I'm a big football fan. And you know I committed to doing this a little while ago. And then when I was looking at my schedule for this week, I was like, oh, no, this is like the same time as the draft. <laughs> like, oh, my God. But I have recorded it. Do not have VJ or anyone else tell me who was drafted. I'm going to watch it a little later on tape delay and pretend it's live. Cool. Uh, this reminds me of And I'm wearing my Chicago Bears uh Shirt in honor of the NFL draft uh, tonight. And nobody in the comments, I'm not sure, Sean, how if you have your TV or your screen configured to see the comments, nobody in the comments give anything away. We are all in a cone of silence here. Very good. So uh, now Jenny wants to know, or B, let me give you VJ's follow up. 
He yeah. says he's going to catch up on this live stream later because he's watching the draft right now. All right, BJ. Understood. Thank you. I don't blame him. I'd be watching the draft rather than me as well. I would watch me uh, on delay as well. And I would have been watching before Dan Snyder ruined everything, but that's an entirely different conversation <laughs> for us to have over an entirely different kind of drink. So Jenny wants to know what your thoughts are on uh, fans getting together for the timeless renewal for season two. Um, well, they should, they should wear masks. They should wear masks and say at least six feet apart would be my first thing. Listen, um, we have to talk about timeless. I've never experienced anything in my life like I've experienced timeless fans. Um, I owe such a debt um, to the beautifully maniacal um, feelings that they have for our show. Uh, and, you know, I think that there's a little bit of a publicity thing in town um, where people stir up fans and really fan reaction has nothing to do with whether a show will get picked up or not. Timeless really is the exception to that story. The, you know, we would air an episode of Timeless. It would trend number one on Twitter. Um, when the show initially got canceled, the outrage really did rattle and shake the executives at NBC. Uh, and made them reconsider, and, and we were canceled. And then 48 hours later, we were picked up simply because, um, well, it was twofold. The fans really made NBC reconsider, and then and then NBC, having reconsidered, went to Sony, our, our studio and producer, and said, well, how do we make this happen? And then they worked out a deal economically that worked for both sides. And then, and then when it was canceled a second time, um, Timeless fans kept – you know, berating the NBC, you know, um, social media feeds. They didn't want the story to end. They wanted some sort of conclusion. And and Bob Greenblatt and Jen Salky, to their credit, they loved the show creatively, and they really did want to give an ending to the fans. And and they authorized this two-hour movie that aired in December of, uh, I guess, 2018. And... Um, they didn't have to do that. That was not necessarily a moneymaker for them. I think Studio Network both pretty much broke even on it. But really, they did that for the fans. Um, and so I, having, having been resurrected twice on Timeless, I, I refuse to ever believe that it's dead. I think it's sleeping right now. <laughs> um, I think Timeless is sleeping. Um, but I think, especially as more fans discover it, in this digital age, um, I do think and hope that there'll be a time when maybe it's a streaming site, maybe something else sort of say, maybe it'll just be a movie, you know, maybe it'll be a two hour streaming movie, or maybe it'll be a, just a four episode thing, you know, maybe it'll be sporadically every few years, I, or maybe it will never happen. Cause I, I always hate to overpromise to fans and under deliver. Um, but to me, Timeless is uh, the monster that won't die. Um, and I've been so kind of moved and inspired by the passion that, that Timeless fans have for the show. And, you know, I know that Eric Kripke and I and the actors, you know, we, we would be more than willing to, you know, resurrect it in some form, um, you know, if the appetite was there at some point. Well, it seems to me, because I remember all that happening and was delighted by it, uh, <laughs> and the, and the, ad, the, the plane at Comic-Con flying by and all this crazy stuff, and it reminded me of the early 
write-in campaigns to save Star Trek. And right. it, it just feels to me only genre shows inspire this level of passion. And I don't know exactly what it is about genre shows, about fans. I am one of them. Uh, anything that I have pulled past on Netflix that has a space backdrop, I'm like, ooh, what's this? <laughs> and I think that there's just something that's that's primal, that genre fans are the most intense no matter what, and that we could very easily see a situation 10 years from now, a la Star Trek The Motion Picture, where you have Timeless The Motion Picture, and right. it's a big studio movie. It's based on a hot piece of IP, and it's like a theme park ride practically. And then they yeah, you're, you're so right. There's something about the genre world. What's interesting is my brother Jason grew up much more of a genre fan than I did. Although I loved like Back to the Future and Star Wars and everything. Um, there are two stories that like we realized that one of the people talking a lot about Timeless online on Twitter was William Shatner, um, which right. we which we sort of blew, it blew our mind uh, and everything and. Um, and then uh, I was flying up to Vancouver um, to go to the set of Timeless. And going through security, I saw, oh, my God, that's Mark Hamill from, from Star Wars, right? And with his girlfriend or wife or whoever it was. And, um, and we wife. were sitting um, not exactly in the rows opposite each other, but only one row probably could see each other. And I was just sitting there sort of doing my work, and I hear him and his significant other start talking about Timeless. Mm. Or or he heard me. Oh, I think what it was was my seatmate was, you know, because I usually don't talk to people on planes unless they talk to me, but this seatmate was particularly curious. Like, oh, who are you? What do you do in life and everything? And I was like, oh, I'm a writer. And, oh, what do you write for? Well, I write for TV. Oh, well, what TV do you write for? And I was like, oh, well, I'm currently working on a show that films on Vancouver named Timeless. And Mark Hamill heard that. And all of a sudden, oh, we love Timeless. And I found myself in a conversation <laughs> with Mark Hamill, with Luke Skywalker, of all people, on an airplane about how he loved Timeless. There is something about the genre world that just inspires such passion with people. I don't fully understand it. Um, but God, I love it with, with Timeless. Um, and there's something about these shows that transport you away from, you know, what sucks about this, you know, corporal life we live in and, and transports you to someplace better. And you don't want that better place to go away. Um, yeah. And I remember I was so young when Star Trek was canceled. I certainly don't remember it. And I discovered Star Trek, you know, in repeats later on. Um, but there is something about those shows as opposed to cop shows or other things that people can acknowledge. Oh, I really enjoyed that. Um, but it's not something that feels essential in my life. And there's lots of people for whom timeless felt essential in their lives. It's interesting because I've thought about this a lot as a diehard genre fan, and I, I think that there's something, it's, it fills a space, especially in a modern secular society, almost of religion and myth, and mm -hmm. that when you look at the Marvel movies doing as well as they do, and you look at all of the top box office movies almost, uh, even adjusted for inflation with the exception of like Gone, for the Wind, Gone with the Wind and Titanic, which are historical epics, and most of the things that make the most money, 
that have the most passionate fans that stand the test of time for hundreds of years. I mean, going back to Shakespeare and before that to the Odyssey and before that to the Bible, they're genre stories. The Bible is the original, like, mm, can we have like a genre element, something that's like larger than life? Like, you know, we want to have some, some, some major powers. And I think that there's just something primal in humans that need myth and that genre fills that and that timeless, particularly, I know certainly for me, like, it fills that, but in a way that feels a little bit more grounded with recent history and the world that we live in. So it feels like it's speaking more directly to us than something else might. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I give a lot of credit to Eric Kripke, my, my partner in crime, my co-creator on that show. He really is a master of genre. He's got a show um, on Amazon now, The Boys, that is well worth watching if you haven't seen it. Um, and, he, and he really taught me a lot about um, writing for genre and, and what you talk about the myth of it all um, and the role of re reluctant hero um, in all this and, the, and the, role, the role of sort of taking on responsibility for the greater good at your own sacrifice and, and genre transports us to a place we've never seen before but really touches the heart of the human experience in ways that we, you know, genre shows us who we want to be oftentimes rather than who we are. The Shield, I think, showed who we are. Time, we showed who we want to be. Hmm. I like that. That is a really beautiful note to, to land on. And I think that it speaks to two very different kinds of writing that people can keep in mind, writing to where we are and who we are and writing to who we want to be. Those are two really strong points of view to come at a story from. Uh, so I've got one last question, and this actually comes from my sister, who apparently is watching. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Washington, uh, D.C. area. If anybody over there needs some help because you've been cloistered with your spouse, uh, I'm doing an unpaid sponsorship break for that. Uh, but she just wants to know, if your family feels very proud. Okay, now you're gonna get me emotional, which is- Please, that's the best. That's what she does, that's her job. I lost my father five years ago. Um, he died suddenly one night. Um, so I'll tell, I'll tell a story about this. Um, it was around when Mad Dogs, my show on Amazon was premiering. So I was kind of checking Twitter more often than usual um, just because I wanted to see. Because as you said, who knows who's watching things on Amazon and Netflix and Hulu. Um, and by the way, I love Mad Dogs as a show, and it is on Amazon, and you should check it out. Um, it's 10 episodes, and I really love it. So anyways, I was checking Twitter, and someone from my hometown um, who I didn't know tweeted um, – hey, I just saw your father and he was acting all strange. You should check on him. And I thought, well, that's weird. Um, and I called my cousin in Rockford and said, hey, I got this weird tweet, you know. And I and I followed the person and DM'd her. I was like, what are you talking about? And she said, oh, I met this bar and he was here. But when he walked out, he was sort of talking a little bit strangely. And um, you just might want to check on him. So I had my cousin who lives near him go and drive over to his house and in fact, 
he was um, having a brain embolism and he had driven home and he had collapsed in the front yard of his house and it was January, 20 degrees. And my cousin found him and he was still um, conscious and they called the paramedic. Now, he ultimately ended up dying that evening um, because there was just too much damage. He had had a heart attack a year before and he was on blood thinners. And when you have a brain embolism and, and you have blood thinners, it, it, it damages the brain sort of quicker. Um, but I always look back and, and, and – but he passed away with his sister and his nieces with him in Rockford in Illinois. Um, and I think, and I always thought if I hadn't been in television and I hadn't created these shows that people watched, a fan who followed me because of that wouldn't have told me that, Hey, your father, um, was acting a little strange. You should check on him. And he would have essentially died in his front yard, um, of exposure. And instead I got a heads up and I was able to call my cousin and he was transported to a hospital and was surrounded by loved ones when he passed away. Um, and the thing, he was so proud of me um, and my brother, um, but the shows, he always used to come to set um, of the show I was working on at that moment to, uh, you know, he always loved talking to the actors and loved talking to the director. And he really loved being the father of Sean Ryan, who had created these shows. Um, and I think, you know, the only movie I've ever cried at in person in movie theater was Field of Dreams, which, um, you know, is a father-son story, right? Every son wants to get the approval of their father, you know, wants to feel like they were raised in a way that made their father proud. And, um, you know, and the good thing for me was that my father um, was proud and I knew that before he passed away and it's something I always cherish. So, um, you know, coming from a place like Rockford, my mother who's still alive, thankfully, you know, my cousins, um, you know, they, uh, I've done them proud and, uh, you know, it's, it's really gratifying. So screw you for getting me emotional and um, I'm going to drink more wine now. <laughs> well, uh, in the spirit of family, I will say that I will, I will totally pass all the blame for getting you emotional onto my little sister uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> because that's what I have done for most of my life. <laughs> and, uh, and she messages that, that now she and my folks are emotional too. Mm -hmm. uh, this is, I have to say, both the first episode of this show that I've done where I was nervous beforehand because I didn't actually know you uh, and because I am genuinely such a fan and also the first episode that I felt was what I wanted this to be uh, a combination of informative for people who are coming up as writers, but also uh, human and emotional for people and authentic for people who just think that writers are interesting, as do I, because I, I think that writers are in many ways some of the most interesting people around. And I don't understand why we always put the focus on actors aside from them always being really good looking. Uh, well, so, that, goes, that goes a long way. But so uh, on that note, thank you for coming on, for sharing uh, your wisdom and insight and heart. We've got uh, two wonderful sponsors now for this show, Notes for Execs 
and Roadmap Writers. Roadmap is an online writer educational platform hosted by working industry executives. And if you're looking for a real world solution to help develop, market, and sell your script, visit roadmapwriters.com to learn more. Notes for Execs is a company that guides working entertainment executives on how to give better and more effective creative notes. Now they're opening their doors to writers as well who can learn a lot about their own writing through the notes giving process. And I am also going to get more 15 second spots for those from those companies. So I'm not just saying the same stuff over and over every time. Thanks very much and have a wonderful evening. Pandemic.